you, Lord Jesus, for this beautiful and this wonderful day. Thank you for resurrection. Thank you that we can celebrate together and that we can all know that you are indeed alive. Thank you that you love us. And um, thank you that you are with us always. Praise in your name. Amen. So did everybody get cake? Do you like some cake or death? <laughs> cake or death? I'll have some cake, please. <laughs> well, we're out of cake. I'll have the chicken then. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, resurrection. Resurrection is my favorite topic to talk about. I think... Um, so every year when I teach on um, Easter Sunday, it's kind of more or less the same kind of sermon. So it's really great to prep for because I can just pull out like the old one and just uh, kind of rework it a little bit. We're going to be in John 20, if you want to turn there. So um, Niels, yes, let's show up. I'm going to read for us from John 20 while Nils gets that ready. Early on the Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, They have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. They both they were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then a disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scripture. That said, Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said. For I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. And then actually the little next verse, which is in the, whoever edited this, 
kind of made a little set, put in a little title there. It says Jesus appears to his disciples, but those weren't in the original text, of course. In the next verse, in the verse 90, says, That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. So, in uh, verse 1 and verse 19, you have a repeat of a phrase. And uh, ancient writers used to do this all the time to tell you that this, the stuff that's in the middle is really, really important. So you have Sunday. So in the original text, it reads, the first day of the week, this and this and this happened. And then uh, at the end of that whole little story, it says again, it was the first day of the week, the evening of the first day of the week. So it's like John is trying to emphasize something, that this thing that happened in the center is on the first day of the week. So here's the crazy bit, is we, every single time I set up a new phone or I set up my Google Calendar or whatever, it asks you this one little question. And it says, which day is the first day of the week, right? And then you have to choose Sunday or Monday. Who chooses Monday or Sunday? I choose mo Monday. Who chooses Sunday? Heretics. Everybody's heretics and <laughs> chooses Monday. So I always have to choose Sunday. You have to actually go back and change it. Sunday is the first day of the week. We are that crazy group of people in the world that believe that Sunday is the first day of the week. That's a, it's such a massive part of what being Christian is about. It's like Sunday is the first day of the week. It is the, it's the day of resurrection. It's we always celebrate every single Sunday. That's why Christians gather on a Sunday. Because every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. And that's why we never fast on a Sunday. Because Sunday is about resurrection. It's about new life. It's the first day of the week. And what John does and is John writes a resurrection, or not a resurrection, a creation narrative in his gospel. So who remembers John 1 verse 1? What's the first words in John? In the beginning. Right? So where else in the Bible do you find the words in the beginning? In the beginning. This is really easy. Yeah. In the beginning. So, and how many miracles are there in John? He doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. How many are there? Seven. 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 Seven miracles in John. So here we have, in the beginning, seven miracles. It's the first day of the week. It's the first day of the week. John is telling throughout his whole narrative a new, a new creation. He's telling the story of a new creation. He's saying that something new has begun, and it has begun in Jesus. So when a new week starts and Jesus rises from the grave on the first day of the new week, it is a new world, which is so massive. I think often the resurrection is like one of the most misunderstood concepts in, in Christianity, even though it's the most important one. It's like we think of it as something that proves that Jesus is, Jesus is God, and that's not what it proves, right? Nobody's wor worshiping Lazarus, and no, nobody's worshiping, you know, the boy that Jesus, wrote, that Jesus resurrected. There's no religion of Lazarus, but there's a religion of Jesus, the resurrection does not prove that Jesus is God. The resurrection does not also, the purpose of it is not so that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus, right? That's often what people say. Like, the reason he rose from the dead is so that you can have a personal relationship with him. And that's also not the deal. It's so much more than that. And the, <clears throat> there's a bigger story that's going on. 
Can you find Ian Angan? I think he's about the race ball. There's a bigger story that, uh, that's going on. So just to fill this narrative out a bit, in the, in the Old Testament, people believed that when you die, you are dead. Right? This was the thinking of the day. <laughs> it wasn't very advanced at all. <laughs> when you die, you are dead. You go to a place named Sheol. It is the underworld, and it exists underneath the earth. And everybody goes there. Whether you were good or bad, it doesn't matter. Everybody ends up in Sheol. And at the most, you will be kind of this floating spirit in the underworld. Right? So when you read the Old Testament and you see how people praise God's blessing is with people that are alive. Right? As long as you are alive, it means that God's blessing is with you. So when you see the psalm writers, they'll say, how can I worship you from the grave? How can I worship you from Sheol, the underworld, when I'm dead? What good am I to you when I'm dead? Please protect me from my enemies. So as long as you live, it means that God is with you. When you are dead, it means he is not. Right? It's very simple. So... This was the kind of thinking about the afterlife in the Old Testament. You see it everywhere. But as, as Scripture progresses, the theology develops, and God reveals more and more of himself. And in the book of Daniel and in the book of Ezekiel, you start finding these ideas of a different kind of afterlife. And both Ezekiel and Daniel were written in the time of the exile, right? So exile was a really, really bad time where all the elite and the priests were taken into exile and everybody else was left behind to die and fend off the lions and starve to death. So it was so an insane catastrophe, as big as you can imagine, being taken away, your entire people, your temple is completely flattened and destroyed. You are away from your homeland for hundreds of years. And the destruction is so massive that you keep on thinking, like the, if you read through Ezekiel and through Daniel and all these prophets, you'll see the thinking that says, God promised that he will do something. And we believe, they try to have faith that he will do something, but the only thing that they could imagine that he could do that could fix this, because it was such, the, the destruction was so massive, the only way that God could fix this is by literally resurrecting it by rebuilding it. So you have in Ezekiel 17, if I remember correctly, you have the vision of the dry bones. Remember that? There's a, nice, there's a couple of songs written about it too, where he sees the field of dry bones and then the flesh comes onto the bones and the skin and they stand up and they become army. So that's one of the first images of resurrection that we have. And then in Daniel as well, it says, the, the righteous will shine like the stars and they will be resurrected again. You have that little line saying that there's this thinking starts to develop that there's more behind the way that God is going to fix all of this because he keeps on promising, I'm going to fix this, I'm going to fix this, I'm going to fix this. And they were thinking the only way that he could fix this is by literally letting the entire creation break down and fall apart and rebuilding it from the ground up. Right? So that, that, that kind of thinking started developing. Then in the New Testament, that kind of thinking was the thinking of the day. That or for most people at least, so that the righteous and the unrighteous will be resurrected and then judged on the day of the Lord. So you find this phrase in the Bible, the day of the Lord, all the time. And this is when everybody will be resurrected and they will be judged. Some people believed only the righteous will be resurrected and then other people believed 
everyone. Now, you find this in John, where Jesus actually um, resurrects Lazarus, and then Mary says, or was it Mary or Martha? That says, I know that he will rise again on the day of the Lord at the, end, at the end times, at the day of the Lord eventually. When we all rise, we are in God's kingdom. A phrase like that. So Jesus says, he's not, he's not dead, he'll rise again. And then she says, I know he will, like eventually, when everybody will, right? So the thinking was that this day of the Lord will be at the end of the age, and then that will signify a new age. So you find this speaking of like these two ages, the current age and the age to come. And unfortunately, in Christian circles, the age to come for us sometimes means the one where Jesus has come again, the second coming, and then the age to come will be the one that's now here, right? Does that make sense? <laughs> so, but, so they believed at the end of the time, God will rise up everybody, then the new age will come, the kingdom of God, right? So what's so amazing about the resurrection is that this timeline got skewed, is that nobody thought that resurrection was going to happen to one person right in the smack dam in the middle of history. Everybody thought that eventually resurrection will happen and then the new age will be here. But what is so amazing about it and why everybody was so damn excited about it was that here it happened to one person in the middle of history. So the age that was to come started and is now overlapping with the age that is now here. And that's what we believe. And that's why everybody is so excited. Saying that a new world, a new creation, has started within the old one. It is not one day. It's not eventually there will be a new age. It is already here. It is now. In, throughout the Gospel of John, you'll find something called a realized eschatology. It means, eschatology means that, is, that which is to come and the way that it, it's going to happen. In John, all of that is here. John doesn't say, you will eventually have eternal life. He says, you have eternal life. And you have it in abundance right now. Everything John talks about is always present tense. The goodness is not to come, it is already here. The peace is not to come, it is already here. It's always present. And that's what's so freaking awesome. Right? And that's why, can you skip on the next one? I can't remember what I'm... Yeah, next one. So this, of course, changes, it changes the whole game. It changes every single thing. The only reason when historians look at why Christianity developed so quickly as it did and why it attracted such a massive following, the only reason under immense persecution was resurrection. The only thing that they can, they can trace it back to is to say that the only way that these people would die singing hymns while they were being set alight would be because they believed something that is so powerful that it gave them this inner peace and this inner joy that just transcends every single thing. That there must have been a resurrection, that the story that they tell about Jesus rising from the dead is true. And that's what, that was the, the drive behind the whole movement, is the resurrection. And it changes every single thing, or it's, it should change every, every single thing, the way that you think about everything. <clears throat> because resurrection is not only about Jesus rose from the dead, now I will go to heaven when I die. That's not our story, and to be honest with me, that's a pretty boring story. What's so great about resurrection is that it happened here now, that the new creation is, was, being, was born within the old. Like it's a flower that came up in the middle of a rubbish dump, 
And that's what it is. And whenever you are, resurrection is. And it includes every single thing. Not just people's spirits, but people's bodies, but the whole of creation. And when we, we kind of we take part in, cre- in resurrection whenever we resurrect something in our lives, whenever you fix something, whenever you hand out hope and love and forgiveness and grace and mercy, all of that is resurrection. And all of that is beautiful and part, and part of the new creation. Jesus gives us hope. Whenever Paul writes to the churches that were being severely persecuted, or any of the letters, he doesn't, and he, whenever he wants to give them hope, he always points to the resurrection. He says, it doesn't matter what you are going through now because there will be a resurrection. Because you will be, you will be raised from the dead eventually. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what is happening now because there will be a resurrection. Therefore, now you can already live in that joy and that peace which is to come, but which is already here at the same time. So that is always the hope, is that everything will be okay in the end, and in fact is now. Because if you, if you say, for example, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know what, what to go. So I have to believe in the resurrection. I have to. When you say, I don't know how to get out of this situation. I don't know. This is so bad. It's insanely bad. You go, you have to believe. You have to believe in the resurrection. If you say that, you know, the world is coming to an end. Our economy is coming to an end. Politics is going crazy. Everything is going nuts. You have to go, but we believe in the resurrection. If you say, you know, crime is crazy, then we have to say, but we believe in the resurrection. We know that there will be a resurrection. I have to believe that. I don't know what else, like, I don't know what else to do. Like, nothing else makes sense for me. Like, there's so much, there's so much pain and so much suffering. And so many times I have seen that pain and that suffering birth something that is incredibly beautiful. There's one theologian, I can't remember his name now, somebody asked him, do you believe in the resurrection? And he said, I see it too often not to. Isn't that great? I see it too often not to. And that's just, when it, when it comes right down to it, whatever, whatever I'm going through, whatever anybody or any one of us is going through, is saying it, we live a different life. A life that is, there's one poet called it, threatened by the resurrection. Can you put up that next one? Yeah, that one. Listen to this. Julia Esquivel is a, is a Guatemalan poet who lived in exile in Mexico during the genocides carried out on the indigenous people. And this is one of her poems. And it points to a power of a life that is lived with the resurrection. And I just love it. It says, accompany us then on this vigil and you will know what it is to dream. You will then know how marvelous it is to live threatened with resurrection, to dream awake, to watch asleep, to live while dying, and to already know oneself resurrected. The, what this points to, what she says actually, it is the, the gift of life through death. 
And here's where it, where it kind of gets, where it, where it gets hardest. You can, never have, you can never have Sunday without Friday. If you were here since Thursday, where we had the same table and we ate communion on it and shared, and shared the Seder meal and the Passover meal and talked about the lamb. And then on Friday when we were here and this table was still dressed and we ripped off the cloth and everything came crashing to the ground, symbolizing death. And today is this beautiful with cake and flowers and all of that. You cannot just only have the beautiful one. You also need the Thursday and the Friday. Death always precedes resurrection. And that's our hope. And that's the hope that this poem is about as well. It's saying that if there's so much, so much pain in you and so much suffering and so much fear, is that when you are in Christ, you can live a life that is threatened with the resurrection. A life that starts dreaming in the midst of that pain. Because without that resurrection, we have nothing. If your marriage is a dog show, then you can go, but I believe in the resurrection. If there's so much pain and so much suffering and so much worry in your life, you can still go, but I am part of the resurrection. That I have to. I just have to believe that God is doing something inside of me and inside of our family and with all this pain and all this rejection and all this suffering that we are going through. That there is something inside of that will, that will birth again. Because otherwise, what do we have? Without it, we are lost. Is that what Paul says? Without the resurrection, we are lost and we are still in our sin. And you just have to believe that. And that's what I want. That's what gets me so excited about the resurrection. It gets me so excited about this day. And it so sucks always that this falls right in the middle of holidays because then like only half the people are here. Because it's so important, and it's so important to understand that Jesus is alive. And not as a spirit, and not as a ghost, and not as a human being, as a flesh and blood human being. And just for a moment, try and wrap your mind around that. There's a flesh and blood human being. Like, take your own hands and go like this, and like feel flesh and blood and the heat like in your own body. There's a person that is just like you, sitting at the center of the universe. Isn't that incredible? The universe does have a center, and it does have a throne, and on that throne there is a lamb. And every single thing revolves around that. Every single thing. And we have to believe that. You have to believe that the resurrection is more powerful than your pain. You just have to. Because we do not have another choice. For centuries, for millennia now, Christians have believed this. And it's the one thing that keeps on driving every single Christian. Is that in each one of you, and in me, and in everyone, lives the spirit of resurrection. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, resurrected Jesus from the dead, lives in you. So what if your pain and your suffering and all of that just gets remade into something that is awesome and beautiful? If you let it. I suppose that's the catch, isn't it?
if you let it. So the question for all of us, for me and for every single one of us, is do you trust the resurrected Jesus enough to turn your pain into joy? Do you want to live a life threatened with resurrection, to dream awake and watch asleep? And I would go, yes, please. Of course. What kind of question is that? But for some reason, we don't. And I'm the first one to put up my hand going wallowing in my own kind of misery and sorrow and depression and whatever. But there's more. And that's what this day is about. And that's what the whole year centers around. And as we move now into Easter, it's like four or five weeks of the church partying. That's what the next season is, where we were now in Lent and was fasting and sorrow and penance. Now it's party. It's absolutely party time. Because Jesus is alive. And we can all live, I love this, we can live a life that never says die. Yeah, cool. We can live a life that never says die. I'm going to pray for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us. Thank you, Lord, that in you there is hope. And there is mercy and there is forgiveness and there is renewal. Thank you, Lord, that you always, always, always come back for us. That you move towards us and never away. Help us to always move towards one another and to live the resurrected life towards one another. A life of grace and mercy and forgiveness. Lord, and forgive us when we forget. And forgive us when we hurt one another. And forgive us when we don't trust you. I want to pray for every, just every heart in this place, including my own, that is filled with, with pain and sorrow and the sorrow of rejection. Thank you that you include us and that you have made the circle so massive to fit the whole world, all of creation. Give us your spirit anew so that we can live a, res a resurrected life in full view of the world. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are alive. Pray this in your name. Amen.